This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. The book is titled Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes, A Cautionary Tale of Race and Brutality. The author, Stephen G. Bloom, is my guest. Stephen, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you, Norman. It's great to be here. First of all, this may sound surprising to you that when I received your book and before I even started to read it, my first thought was to look in the mirror just just to make sure the color of my eyes. Well, I already knew, of course, but I just I just did it as an experiment for myself. So I looked in the mirror and said to myself, well, yeah, you've got blue eyes. How would I how would I think about this if I was eight years old and was told all the things that Jane Elliott said. I, I, I just, just as an experiment for myself and I became very, very perplexed. That's just the beginning of this before I really got into your book. It's a cautionary tale of race and brutality about the experiments that Jane Elliott did. So could you, could you, for my listeners that may be not quite familiar with what happened, could you just give us a little overview of that experiment? Sure. 1968, day after Martin Luther King was assassinated, Jane was a third grade school teacher in a rural farming town in north central Iowa called Riceville, population 700. All white students, all white farmers. Jane is white also. And Jane thought, how can I bring the horrific nature of what happened to Dr. King to my 26 sheltered white students who'd never met a black person before, ever. And so Jane, the next day, decided to split her class of 28 students into those with blue eyes and those with brown eyes. Um, The blue-eyed kids were told um, that they should push their desks all the way to the back of classroom number 10. That's where Jane taught. Um, The brown-eyed kids were the privileged kids, and they were taught to, uh, they were instructed to push the desks into the front row. Jane proceeded then to say to the blue-eyed kids, you are all genetically inferior. These were third grade students, and they didn't quite know what genetically meant. So Jane said, you were made inferior. So I'm going to give you guys homework assignments, both the blue-eyed kids and the brown-eyed kids, but blue-eyed kids don't even try to do it because you can't do it. And even if you can do the homework assignment, you won't get it right. You know, you blue-eyed kids are shifting. Um, you, you tell lies. I'm also not going to let you play on the jungle drum, you blue-eyed kids, because you kids wreck everything we give you. And, you know, If the blue-eyed kids want to play on the jungle gym, brown-eyed kids, you beat them up. Push them off the seesaw. Push them off the swings. Give them what they deserve. Within 15 minutes, Jane Elliott was able to create bullies out of the blue-eyed kids. And, no, excuse me, she was able to create bullies out of the brown-eyed kids and, and cowering, scared uh, children out of the um, uh, from the blue-eyed kids. So what what happened was Jane was trying to simulate racism. The yes. blue-eyed kids were going to be 
the black children for the day and, and the brown-eyed kids were going to be the white kids, the superior students. Um, and, and thus began a day of horror, a day of terror. Um, and when a fight erupted between a blue-eyed child and a brown-eyed child on the jungle gym, Jane would say, she would put her fist together and say, you give it to the blue-eyed kids, brown-eyed child. Um, and this was all an attempt of, of explaining what racism in America was like in 1968. Yes. And of course, it went horribly wrong, as we, as we, as we learn. Uh, where did she get the idea from in the, in, the, in the first place? A lot has been written about this. Can you explain, Stephen? The, the uh, idea to, to simulate racism based on eye color did not originate with Jane Elliott. Uh, it, it had been tried years and years and years before. It had been tried in America um, in the late 20s, in the 30s. Uh, Jane did not originate it, but Jane certainly popularized the idea. The, the, the concept of splitting uh, uh, these third graders, these seventh and eighth graders into um, blue and brown-eyed groups was switched on Monday. So on Monday, Jane came back. And she said, oh, whoa, 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 let's do it differently now. Let me make the blue-eyed kids the superior kids and the brown-eyed kids the inferior kids. And, you know, these, these cute kids in the third grade looked at Jane and said, you mean it all was a joke? It all was just a, a test? And Jane avoided answering that question. But she did notice something that was really miraculous that the, the anger, the hate that she, had, that she had seen on Friday wasn't duplicated on Monday. In other words, the, the blue-eyed kids realized the kind of terror that they were subjected to, and they didn't exercise it against the, uh, against the, um, uh, the blue-eyed kids on Monday. Yes. Yes. And so... It was a it was a one-two punch. And when I say punch, I mean that very seriously, very literally. When fights erupted on the playground, Jane did nothing to to intercept uh the fighting, to, to break the fighting down. Um so so that was the experiment. It was in a small town in a in a place in flyover country in the United States in 1968, and that was it. Until the local paper ran a story about it and until a friend of Jane's happened to send the clip from the local paper to the tonight show starring Johnny Carson. Yep. And Carson for some reason was, well, he, you know, he was an Iowa native. Uh, and for some reason he really took a liking to the idea. And this moment was really a seminal moment in American history because Martin Luther King had been killed. Yes. Um, and Robert F. Kennedy was about to be assassinated in June, a matter of a month later. And so um, American cities were just uh, rising up in, um, in flames at that point. This was 1968. Um, and so Jane appeared on the Carson show. And 
you know, the research shows that Carson needed to to show some nod to what was going on in America at the time. And here was Jane, sort of a, you know, um, a, a rural school marm. And Carson had a really wonderful, fun time having civilians on his show, you know, whether they had roosters who rang a bell or whether they had, you know, men who uh, had a shotgun and and obliterated a Coke machine uh, or he had Tiny Tim who was on the same era. And um, so Jane very effectively described what she did separating blue-eyed kids from brown-eyed kids to simulate racism. And uh, she was whisked off the air after six minutes. This is not something Carson wanted to deal with. Carson was Americans, America's comedian, Americans, you know, happy, funny man. This yep. did not match that. Um, but thus began Jane's sort of me- meteoric rise into American media and into international media. The CBC followed the Carson debut and had her on um, uh, Canadian broadcasting TV from coast to coast uh, because Canadians at that time uh, were experiencing a bit of racism of their of their own with what were called Eskimos, yes. uh, uh, Canadian Inuits, um, and that sort of got this ball rolling. And in 1971, Jane appeared on what became a Peabody Award nationally broadcast TV show on ABC TV. Um, and and it, it won a Peabody Award. Um, and it just became really very famous. It was called Eye of the Storm. Your viewers can, can uh, Google that and, and, and see the original show. And Jane suddenly became the mother of diversity training with this very simple um, concept. It was almost a miracle cure. You know, it was easy, tidy, quick, and it was seemingly effective. But ultimately, it was too simple because Jane tried to impart to white people what black people had endured for their entire lives. Um, Jane also tried to do, in a sense, what, what two very famous psychologists in America had done earlier. These guys are, are Stanley Milgram and Philip Zimbardo. Zimbardo, your, your uh, guest might know, is the uh, originator of the Stanford Prison Experiment, yes. where he really taught people how to, how to be thugs by just giving them uh, a minimal amount of power. Anyway, what Jane did subsequently really played to the worst human instincts it was to be cruel it was to be mean it was to tell kids to pick fights it was to insult it was to heckle it was to push it was to exclude um it really was an incendiary experiment um and it became perverse and it sort of verged on on being sadistic in this very quick easy attempt to simulate racism. Yes. My guest is Stephen G. Bloom. The book is titled Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes, A Cautionary Tale of Race and Brutality. Stephen, you begin your book in the introduction, and I'm not quoting, I'm just what I remember you saying. You say, out of the blue, you get a phone call 
from Jane Elliott. Talk to me about that and why she called you and, and how that came about. Okay, so I'm, I'm nestled in a small town. I'm a professor at the University of Iowa. Iowa City is about 250 miles from Chicago. For better or for worse, what I do is I go to small rural towns and I just open up a can of pop, as we call it in Iowa, and look at the trains go by if there are any trains left in rural Iowa and just sort of write about what's going on. And I've written several books about small flyover country in America. Um, Jane Elliott knew about those books and called me and said, why don't you write about me? And so I um, said, sure, I'll come up, I'll visit you, uh, and we can visit together, as we say in rural Iowa. And um, I talked to Jane, and Jane was um, right off the bat very eager to have me write a book. Um, nothing wrong with that. She was ambitious. She believed in her cause. And she wanted to sell me her idea of this experiment, which she steadfastly referred to as an exercise. You know, to me, Norman, it never seemed like an exercise. An exercise is teaching scales on, on the piano. Um, an exercise is, you know, the result, but this really was an experiment. Well, the media had given Jane a pass. Everyone really liked Jane's idea. You know, she's very mediagenic. She's telegenic. She speaks very articulately. Um, and it just seemed too good to be true, mm. this idea. We can let white, I'm a white man. We can let white know what it's like to be black within a matter of several minutes. They'll understand the horror of what we've done to black people mm. by excluding them by bullying them. You know, it seemed a little too good to be true. Um, so I talked to many of the students who had been Jane's victims, subjects. Um, some of them said it worked great. Others of them told me it was a horror show. It didn't stop. You know, after Jane said it was all made up, Kids continued bullying me. Kids, kids continued um, saying, get off the playground. You're inferior. So Jane, Jane and I talked. I also talked to many people in the tiny town of Riceville. When I say tiny town, it's, uh, it's about 800 people. Uh, and it's in Insular town. You know, a, a big deal is to go to Des Moines for the state fair. And that's about 150 miles away. Uh, it's a 100% farming village. Um, a, a small family of six children. Um, a lot of people didn't like Jane. A lot of people didn't like Jane because she was ambitious, because implicitly she was calling the town racist. And no one likes to be called racist. Um, and so I ended up writing a story for Smithsonian Magazine. Uh, which is run by the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Never wrote a book. And um, I must say, it was a very positive story. I didn't really have the wherewithal to get into the weeds of, of, of many of the negative reactions to the experiment. 
um, and so I did that in, in 2004. If anyone wants to Google that, they can. Uh, Lessons of a life, Lifetime. It was in Smithsonian in 2004. Then I put the project aside, wrote a couple of other books, continued teaching at the University of Iowa. And um, Jane appeared at a theater in Iowa City in 2018, um, still doing the same thing, still hawking this blue eyes, brown eyes experiment. And, it, you know, I saw a long queue at this local theater as, as I was walking home from work uh, one evening, and I decided to join the queue. And it was around 300 people long. And I took my place in the queue, and I noticed there were there were eight-year-old, nine-year-old kids with their parents. There were grown uh, children with their parents. And as I went into the Englert Theater, I noticed that uh, right away people gave Jane uh, a standing ovation. Not any old standing ovation, a standing ovation that lasted five to eight minutes. As Jane started talking, um, boxes of Kleenex uh, magically appeared and they were passed among everyone. I should say almost everyone in the audience was white. And um, Jane took the stage and she really was accorded a welcome as a, as a, as a heroine, as a, um, as an alpha warrior. And um, I was just struck by this disconnect between Many of the people I talked to in her tiny town of Riceville, who just shook their head and, and, and did not have many good things to say about Jane. And then 105 miles away from where I am from Riceville, this adoration for Jane. And I thought there's gotta be a story here. Yes. So I continued to drive up to Riceville, interviewing a whole bunch of people you know, there are 800 people in the town and you start with interviewing, with interviewing Dwight and then Dwight says interview Beverly and Beverly says interview Mary. And after a while, you interview about 100 people. And, um, uh, and I just noticed this incredible disconnect between how the world at large looks at Jane, who was accorded this moniker as being the mother of diversity training and how the locals look at her which is really to shake their head and to walk away and to be ashamed. Yes. If you're just joining us, my guest is Stephen G. Bloom. His book is titled Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes, A Cautionary Tale of Race and Brutality. I want to dig into this just a little bit with you, Stephen. And that is the people in Riceville. Do, do you think that they thought of themselves as being and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word for this. It's uh, like the opposite of racist, but uh, not, not, not non-racist, but they had no racist feelings whatsoever. Was that their concern? Was that their problem? Or on the other way around, did, did they consider themselves to be somewhat racist? What, what, what do you think they were actually thinking? Uh, a lot of locals said to me, how can we be racist? We've never met a black person. Yes. We've never yes. had an opportunity to be racist. We've never had right. an opportunity to do all of the things that, that racists are supposed to do. Um, you know, and, and Jane had only met several black people in her life. Ah. The question became, 
why is Jane teaching us how not to be racist when Jane also is white? The other thing, Norman, that was going on in town was Jane is a is a very outspoken, enterprising, some might say ambitious um, woman in a small rural town. Um, She's in her late 80s now. Yeah. She did this 50 years ago. She was in her early to mid 30s. There's a little bit of Jane stepping out of her place. She's supposed to be a mom. She's supposed to be a teacher. Teachers and are supposed to be teaching the three R's, reading, arithmetic, uh, writing. What's she doing getting into some of this stuff? Right. Um, and so, you know, it's a small, very clannish uh, town. And everyone knows everyone else's business. You do not turn on your turn signal in town because everyone knows where you're going there is no uh, traffic signal in riceville there's just one stop sign and here's jane sort of stepping out and and telling our children that what we're teaching at home isn't really what we should be teaching yes so two things are going on one she's if you'll pardon the expression uppity woman an uppity mother. And uh, she also comes from, I might say, the wrong side of the tracks. Her parents uh, were poor. Um, She literally lived on the other side of the railroad track. She was educated in a one-room schoolhouse um, until she got to high school. Um, She had four brothers and sisters. She had a chip on her shoulder. She graduated from Riceville High. And here she's coming in and telling us, what we ought to be telling our children, but in a deeply personal way. I mean, where does education stop and, and you know, life lessons begin? Isn't that our job as parents? So there were a lot of students who were uh, subjected to this experiment, exercise, Jane calls it, who were deeply scarred. Um, um, and, and Jane continued doing this experiment in the third grade for 10 more years. Word got out that Jane was embarking on what was seemingly a very successful experiment. And Jane got contacted by a lot of national corporations. Diversity today is a huge issue. Mm -hmm. Diversity was just beginning to become an issue in the 80s. And huge corporations, banks, uh, telecommunication companies like U.S. West, um, other school uh, districts started to import Jane. And Jane would try out the experiment on employees, on adults. But Jane ramped up the experiment. She turned up the voltage. And she really became toxic. She became cruel. This is outlined in the book to create her point that blacks have to experience this every day where whites are only experiencing it in my diversity sessions, one to three days um, at a at a session in Denver sponsored by U.S. West to teach what was called pluralism, which we call diversity today. Um, 
Jane picked out a, a blonde, blue-eyed young woman and never met her before. And Jane said, you slipped away to the top. Um, I'm going to call you Barbie. And every Barbie needs a Ken. And so she picked a handsome man, white man with blue eyes, and called him Ken. This was totally unacceptable. Yeah. This is a, a totally unacceptable. She met a, a, in one of her sessions, there was a Vietnam veteran, and she, a white man. And she said, well, you're a baby killer. You killed Vietnam, Vietnamese babies. You probably dropped napalm. She met a white woman who was a cancer survivor, who was a smoker. And she said, you're, you're, you're going to give cancer to your children. This is all an attempt to simulate what Jane described as what blacks go through. Sitting in the back of the bus, not having equal um, opportunities. And it was, a, it was an inoculation, as Jane put it. To, to never do what whites do to blacks. I'm going to do to whites. But Jane was over the top. She really left a trail of victims who were, who were scarred. Mm. If they weren't adults, they were scarred into adulthood. If they were adults, they never forgot it. Um, and this experiment really became, to many, many people who I interviewed, painfully real, deeply insensitive. And it was divisive the way to teach about racism educators now believe is through empathy by 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 sharing a kind of experience that we all can relate to and stop um she really became a racial shock jock seemingly unconcerned with the damage she left in the wake of these so-called lessons do you think, Stephen, that Jane was completely aware of, of where things were going? Did, was, was she oblivious to, to the fallout from, from what she was saying? You have to ask Jane that. I don't know what she was thinking, but Jane certainly received feedback. She certainly saw victims in these sessions and these sessions were conducted all over the United States. Yeah. They were connected. They were, they were, um, uh, she performed these sessions in great Britain, in Australia, throughout Europe. She became a world phenomenon. Jane saw people crying. She saw, um, the negative impact that, that her experiment created and she persisted. Um, you know, we have to go back, Norman, to when she started this again in 68 and just the popularity of it that was promulgated by the Carson show, by the NBC, by the ABC show um, that was aired repeatedly coast to coast by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation show. Um, Jane suddenly was in massive demand and she her experiment then became adopted by a lot of different psychology professors who were teaching wannabe teachers how to teach the very valid um, experience in America of black versus white. And so um, 
a very well-known psychologist in America, um, Philip Zimbardo, he, he has a book called Psychology, Psychology Today. And that book is, is taught. And the lessons within that book are taught to tens of thousands of potential kindergarten teachers, pre-K teachers, K through six teachers. And Jane's experiment becomes adopted throughout the university system in America and abroad as a way to teach children about race relations. And I talked to many teachers who um, imparted the same Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes experiment throughout the 80s and 90s and still are doing it in, in schools today. Hmm. So how many people have, have undergone this experiment? I would suggest that listeners to your show, and there are many, numerous numbers of them, know about the Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes experiment. It was tried out in Florida. It was tried out throughout the United States. It was tried out in New York. It was tried out in California. It is very well known, and its, it's awful um, impact is, is out there today. Look, there are many people who found it an experiment that was done in the third grade. It was done in the sixth grade. It was done in the 12th grade. Lesson learned, lesson forgot. But for a number of people, that lesson was never forgotten, for good yeah. or for bad. And I talked to many people for whom it was really terrible. It you know, Stephen, listening to you, there is a concerned enthusiasm that comes through, which also comes through in your book. It is a, dare I say, a terrific book to be to be educated by. You write it in just as you're talking to me with, with enthusiasm, even though I can tell that a lot of it is disturbing you, bothers you. But you give us in Blue Eyes and Brown Eyes such a lot of detail. And you don't, I get the feeling you don't leave anything out. You tell us exactly how you feel. Uh, you're documenting, but you also you impart some some of your thoughts as well throughout throughout the book, and I and I really appreciate that and really enjoyed that. Talk to me about putting the book together, uh, talking to Jane, following up on the first phone call that you had, and then compiling all the information that you had to put the book together. I'm getting the feeling, and I'm just this is just a presumption on my part. The one, you were eager to do it, but two, you the, I'm not going to say you had reluctance, but I get the feeling that it, it, it concerned you terribly at the same time. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when I first drove up to interview Jane in, in 2003, um, something didn't feel right in me, in my craw, when I talked to Jane. I've been doing this for a long time. Jane was too enthusiastic. Jane was too eager to tell her story. Um, Jane was too eager to control how the story got, got told. I just noticed a disconnect between Jane's fervor and, and 
talking to these salt of the earth farmers who, when I'd mentioned Jane, when I mentioned her name, it was like uttering uh, a word of profanity. I ended up writing not a negative story for a magazine piece of about four or 5,000 words, but deep down I knew I hadn't gotten the whole story. Mm. And what writers do is metaphorically open up a can of beans and just sit and look around and just listen. And, and I wanted to do that. And that's what I've done with all of my books. So I just, you know, it's the art, uh, a guy by the name of Gay Talese, a famous American yeah. writer said, uh, good journalism is the art of hanging out. And so I started hanging out in Wrightsville. I started going to the depot. I started eating lunch. I started going to Casey's. I started just hanging out there. And, you know, as soon as I pulled in to Wrightsville, which is a pretty small town. Yeah. Um, you know, people noticed that I had out of county plates. Yes. And, and word circulated very fast. You see, that's the professor. That's the guy who's writing the story about Jane Elliott. And, um, after doing that for a couple of times, I, I got people knocking on my window, people coming up to me at the cafe saying, what are you doing here? You writing the story about Jane? Ah, you're not writing the story about Jane. You can't write the story about Jane. Jane's been boozled the world. Wow. My eyes, my, my ears perked up. My eyebrows went into upside down V's. Yes. Tell me what you think. Uh, ah, Jane. Jane. And uh, when Jane got word that I was really doing a story, that I really was not doing parachute journalism, which is let's spend two days here and get out and write the feel good story. Uh, when I was going to spend four or five years really listening, Jane called me and she said, get out of here. I don't want you coming back. I don't want you to talk to anyone else. You start doing this. I'm going to call. I'm going to call my lawyer. And you're going to have a lawsuit on your hands. We're over. We're through. Kaput. That's all I needed to hear. Yes. You know, when, yeah. when, when, when a subject says that, there's a real story. Right. And so th- thus began my descending into the grass, the weeds, the everything that I could. And, you know, I, I sent out word and word gets sent out pretty quickly in a town like Riceville. And, um, in, in, in doing that, I also sent out word everywhere to England, where the experiment had been tried out, to Australia, where people had tried out the experiment, to teachers today who had tried out the experiment, and to hundreds of students. You know, I interviewed a student. Uh, well, she's no longer a student. She's in her mid-50s, who in 1970, she was a... She was a, a she was a transfer student to sort of a posh select private school in Brooklyn, New York. And um, she, she today is diagnosed with, al- excuse me, she's diagnosed with autism. Autism, yeah. And yeah, and that diagnosis didn't exist in 1970. And this poor woman who's now in her mid fifties has said that experiment, the day that she underwent the experiment, not taught by Jane Elliott, but one of Jane's disciples. Yes, yes. It never went away from her. She can't look at blue-eyed people and and maintain eye contact with blue-eyed people. 
because blue-eyed people were so mean in bullying her for the rest of her stay at school. This to me, Norman, and you seem sort of like this can't happen. This is like 50 years ago. But for some people, including this woman who's quoted in the book, who was subsequently diagnosed with with autism, it became a lesson in terror. Um, and, And Jane really had no concern with with the students. Her concern was based on on showing um, in her mind what it was like to be black in America, period, end of topic, end of experiment. And Jane would just do anything she could to shock, to appall, to bully people into realizing what she believed blacks in America undergo. This really isn't the way to get at diversity. It right. really isn't the way to demonstrate why we've got to change our behavior. This isn't the way to talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, there just was no empathy. There was no caring. There was no support system. Which, of course, we have to add here, Stephen, is that she had no experience herself. Of, I mean, she, how would she know how black people in this country, or any country for that matter, felt? She had nothing to go on apart from... Well, she had nothing to go on. So this was completely fabricated. My guest is Stephen G. Bloom. His book is titled Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes, A Cautionary Tale of Race and Brutality. Stephen, in reading your book, I, 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 I've got to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed from beginning to end. And, and, as, and as I said earlier, you go into great detail. You do, and it seems to me you don't hold back. And you, you write in a very... Um, a very familiar style, but by that I mean it's 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 not it's not it doesn't come across as being intellectual and professorial. If if and that, that is a compliment, so I hope you get it. That yeah. Um, when you when you wrote the book uh, and put it together and you sent it to the editor and all the rest of it, was there parts of the book that you felt like you needed to to go into? in more detail or I'm just curious about the sort of the editing process for you. Was there a part of you or part of writing that you felt like, okay, I've got to leave that part out. And and how did that work for you, Stephen? Because there's a lot going on here. Wow. That's a great question. Again, I appreciate that. Okay. So this book originally was pitched as a feel good book. This book originally was pitched as um, heroin. Um, a woman born on the wrong side of the tracks who, despite all odds, succeeds. She, she overcomes personal obstacles. She, um, she conquers the catty nature of a small, gossipy mm. rural town. I mean, Jane really lives in Peyton Place uh, for your old readers. Um, you know, everyone knows everyone else's business. Yeah. Um, and so it was a feel-good book. It was a book about, uh, it was a hidden figures kind of book, the movie, that, um, you know, here is this woman who, against all odds, succeeds. You know, the problem with that book is it never existed. That was the pitch that was the media popular pitch. Yes. We love to get books that, um, that anoint, um, you know, people into, into a, a higher level 
of, of, of being. We, we love Joan of Arc books. We love books uh, about Mother Teresa. We love books about these hidden figures who turn out to be um, our heroes. This book wasn't that. And after I opened up my pop and my can of beans and sat around and I realized this is a whole different book. Yeah. Uh, this, this is a stronger book. This is a book that confounds popular wisdom because if anyone looks up Jane Elliott, they'll see very positive stories about Jane, including my own story that I wrote in, in 2004 that appeared in Smithsonian Magazine. Yes. Lessons of a Lifetime. So I helped create this media hoopla, this, this media blitz that Jane um, very directly had created. Let's just focus just for a moment on that word media, the media, because I'm glad that you mentioned that and about your own involvement in it. But it is I'm not going to because I think it's so easy to point fingers at the media in every in everything in in our world today. But in this case, it was because of Johnny Carson, Oprah and other aspects of the media that really did draw attention to Jane. But at the same time. Jane really, really encouraged the attention. She was, as you said earlier, she was a master at it. She had a natural um, affinity for publicizing herself. Oh, that's absolutely right. Jane, Jane um, is a great salesperson. Yeah. Jane is a wonderful salesperson. The media, though, shares some of the credit, some of the responsibility for ushering Jane onto a roller coaster that had mostly um, ups and downs that 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 Jane herself um, created. Look, Norman. This was a, a miracle. This was a miracle cure. You know, yeah. we, we turn on TV and radio and there's always a way to get stains out of, you know, of your kids' soccer jerseys. Yes. There's new and improved ways to do that. You know, they're, they're new and improved fill in the blanks. Yes. That's what we work on. And when the media are hit with a small town, rural, third grade teacher who has a miracle cure to end racism. Everyone's going to jump on that. It's what? easy. It's simple. It's, it's um, quick. It's tidy. It's easy. It's seemingly effective. It's got the imprimatur of, of an ABC documentary. I got it. They got the imprimatur of Johnny Carson, the Tonight Show. Yeah. Yes. You know, th this is like, uh, for better or for worse, America's bellwether. You know, if you can get on the Carson Show, doesn't make any difference what you do on the Carson Show. You've got this imprint of, of squeaky clean, of of popularity, of America's endorsement. Um, 
And that's all combined in this perfect storm with, with corporations' mandate to fold in consumers who heretofore have not been invited into the tent. African-Americans, Hispanics, yes. Asian-Americans. These are becoming important consumers. And so telephone companies, banks, large corporations need to teach their employees how to deal with this new population buying base. We can't, we can't use the old techniques. We can't speak in the old jargon. And so we have to train our people. And U.S. West, which led this effort, had 80,000 mid-management employees who had to, it was a mandatory, to undergo pluralism training, what was called pluralism training. We talk about it today and we call it um, diversity, diversity, yeah. uh, equity and inclusion training. And, you know, it was at these sessions that Jane sort of turned the dial way up. The voltage got into um, the electric chair um, level. Um, and Jane really, in her zeal um, to explain in her mind what it was like to be black, um, became a sadist. She became a shock jock. Yes. And um, so it really becomes a perfect storm in American history. And, you know, Jane also, it needs to be said, Norman, was involved in this era in American history in the mid-1980s where we saw people like Werner Earhart, uh, who started something called EST, Earhart Seminar Training. Yes. We, we saw a lot, of, a lot of movements of personal dynamic possibility and potential movements. Yes. Management had started in the mid-80s, um, things called um, management by objective, where you would get together all people and you would do team building. Um, so you're all on the same team, ultimately to maximize your effect, to maximize efficacy, to maximize profit. Right. And so we've got a whole bunch of stuff going on. One is this earnest, important, essential need to, to teach whites how to, how to talk nice, but how to talk equitably and how to change their behavior in a radical way. Jane supplied that. It appeared. We've got corporations who are getting um, static from their shareholders. We've got to fold in more people to buy our product. We've got to teach our employees. And, and we also have history. We also have um, Martin Luther King's assassination. We have uh, Robert Kennedy's assassination. We have cities uh, going up in, in flames. We have to do something. Um, and the media become involved in this simply because it's so easy. Yes. It's just, let's treat blacks how we think blacks are treated. We only do it for a day, two or three. And we'll base it on eye color. Because, of course, we can't become black, so we're going to become as close to black as possible. We're going to make the segregation based on eye color. 
It didn't work. You know, it was it was sadistic. It was you know, wrong. Yes, Stephen. Here we are, come knocking on the door of 2022, and so much is going on in our world, particularly here in America, to do with racism. Just yesterday, the news came out of emails that Groden, the manager of an NFL, an NFL team, sending out racist and misogynist and homophobic emails. Things have not changed in so many ways. In fact, in some respects, because we're hearing so much these days, we've got Black Lives Matter on one hand, and then we've got the neo oh no, you've just like purely fascists on the other side. We've got all these things happening. D- does it does it strike you that that um, blue eyes, brown eyes from Jane Elliott sounds it's almost quaint when when you think about it? I, and I don't mean that in a you you. I think you know what I mean. It's a throwback. It's a throwback from 50 years ago. Yeah. It's embarrassing. Yes. I mean, to equate, to equate blue-eyed people for one day with being black, Yes. no matter how many insults you throw at them, well, it's wrong for the blue-eyed people. It's wrong for yes. the brown-eyed people. It's wrong for the green-eyed people. It's wrong for the hazel-eyed people. Right. It's wrong for blacks. It's wrong for uh, Hispanics. It's wrong for Asian-Americans. It's just wrong. What yeah. we need to do is, 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 is create a loving, caring demonstration of why we ought to change our behavior. We need to show some empathy. Yes. You know, yeah, Black Lives Matter is the beginning. You know, yeah, they matter. Well, they do matter. And we're yes. going to start thinking that they matter. Of course. Yes. We, yeah. um, we have to have a support system. Jane, you know, like pulled a trap door. Uh, on, you know, the, those who were going to be called the inferior eye color that day, the blue eyed people or the brown eyed people. It's, we're going to insult you. We're going to, um, um, say if, if they, if they take the swing, you take it away from them. Give them, put your fist together and give them a fist sandwich. This isn't how we go about things. It is, uh, quite a nice way to put it, Norman. Yes, it, I think it really I, is cruel. Yes, it really is wrong. It really is um, not the way we go about um, teaching in a caring, supportive, empathetic way. It it really is a disservice. There is so much more to talk about in your book, Stephen. Time, of course, is always up against us. But I highly encourage people to to get a copy of Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes. One, as I said earlier on, because I, I just love the way that you've written in this book and you touch upon a, a, a whole area of topics that I think is so important to discuss. I'd like to ask you what you would like my listeners and readers to take. What's the big takeaway that you would like people to have from your book? Wow. Um, there are no quick fixes. Um issues of race, issues issues of diversity, issues of inclusion, issues of equity. They have been with us for 400 years. They are going to stay with us. There is no quick fix. In many ways, I think that Jane was um, sort of spun out of an old Iowa musical called The Music Man. And (laughs) Jane was Professor Harold Hill. Um, Jane was spinning a, an idea that was a quick fix, and there are no quick fixes. 
this is something that is in our DNA. It's something that's in our corpuscles. It's something in our blood. We have to work long and hard. We're not going to split a class according to blue eyes and brown eyes children and, and take with, take with that exercise the ability to change how we've been raised, how we've been taught in school. We can't do that. That's one, that's one lesson. Let's get real. Let's be smart. There's no quick fix. Don't let the media tell you that um, undergo this, this miraculous two-day experiment and you'll be race-free. That doesn't happen. Yes. The other thing I'd like le- readers and, and listeners to take from this is, you know, there's a vast America out there. Um, you know, it, it's derisively called flyover country. It's yes. the heartland. Yeah. And, um, and it's a country that uh, it really is a separate country, you know, from from Tampa, from the East Coast, from the West Coast, from Manhattan, from the Golden State Highway, Highway 5. It really is America. And it's an America we have to watch. It's America, you know, it's, it's Trump land. It's, it's red country out there. Donald Trump just had a, a huge rally in Des Moines, and there were 30,000 people there. This book isn't a political book with a uppercase P. It's really a book about America and, and, and how we ought to look at America and how race divides America yes. and how we need to do something about it. It's not going to be a quick fix, though. So well put. Thank you so very much. I have really enjoyed talking with you. I, as always, I, I say this so often when I'm enjoying a book, I highly recommend it. I love talking to you. Um, my guest, Stephen G. Bloom, the book is called Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes, A Cautionary Tale of Race and Brutality. Stephen, thank you so very much for one for writing the book and taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, Norman. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. large thank you to my guest, Stephen G. Bloom, and a big thank you to you for listening. The links to the books and music we feature on Life Elsewhere are always up at lifeelsewhere.co. Now make sure you go there to learn all about the Life Elsewhere shows, including our weekly show on music ingeniously titled Life Elsewhere Music. Now, it's always good to hear from you, so why don't you send me a few thoughts? My email address comes up in the closing credits. Now, the podcasts of Life Elsewhere are up on all the usual platforms and we're now available at Anchor FM. It's a good one. To take us up to those closing credits, here's a cut from an exquisite album of piano music. The title, Piano Cloud Series Volume 6 from 1631 Records out of Sweden. This is Bruno Bavota with What's Left. Till next time, be well. Be safe, and seriously, it won't cost you anything. Be nice. Bye-bye.
You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you.